0: Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Cowden coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program,
1: one of the early members of the influential Acts 29 Church Planting Network is leaving that network and it's going public with its reasons. Grand Canyon University, now the nation's largest Christian college, faces new legal challenges and We remember Donald Wildman, the founder of the American Family Association, who recently died at age 85.
0: We begin today with news that the shakeup at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City continues, this time with the exit of another high level executive.
1: The leadership exodus from the IHOP KC location continues with the departure of David Slyker. That was announced on January 3rd in a tweet and in a press release. Slyker had been with IHOP KC for 18 years, serving as the president of IHOP University and as a member of IHOP KC's executive
0: leadership team. Slicker's departure follows that of Mike Bickle, who founded IHOPKC in 1999. Bickle was accused in October of decades-long sexual abuse involving multiple victims. IHOPKC cut ties with Bickle in December. Bickle has
1: acknowledged what he calls past sins. He said, "'I sadly admit that 20-plus years ago I sinned by engaging in inappropriate behavior.'" but he has denied claims that his sins have been both more numerous and more recent. His bio remains active on the ministry's website. Stuart Greaves, who is the executive director of IHOPKC, also resigned just a month ago in December without giving any reason.
0: Our next story involves Acts 29, the church planting network. City View
1: Church in Fort Worth, Texas, was planted by Matt Chandler's The Village Church, and it's been a member of Acts 29 for nearly
0: two decades. As of January 1st, it's the latest congregation to leave the formerly growing, but now increasingly troubled network, which once claimed it was ushering in the next chapter in the history of the church.
1: Now, City View lead pastor Rick White, who has also held various leadership positions within the network, said this, to say that our church has been invested in Acts 29 would be an understatement. However, Acts 29 is not the same network our church joined in 2005 ax 29 no longer deserves our continued loyalty and trust. I can no longer personally recommend ax 29 Network as a good stewardship of one's time, money, and energy.
0: White said he was saddened to leave ax 29, and he said he felt obligated to release a public statement about his departure after years of publicly supporting the network.
1: And in that letter, he cited three reasons, in fact, three of many reasons, he said, for City View's departure. First was what he called a flawed organization structure that is susceptible to corruption and compromise. He also cited a lack of financial transparency, concerns about board members' independence and conflicts of interest and employment of the president's family members.
0: His second concern is what he calls a leftward theological drift.
1: White said that Acts 29's poor decision making and leftward theological drift makes member churches increasingly vulnerable by association. He specifically accused Acts 29 of ambiguity regarding LGBTQ issues and women preaching in churches. Now, his third objection was that he called Acts 29, what he called with Acts 29's multiplication model, he said that the organization is just simply not multiplying anymore. Acts 29's top-heavy structure, he said, has produced diminishing returns for our church while requiring member churches to contribute more money, more time, and more commitment.
0: And this is not the first time Acts 29 has faced controversy.
1: That's right. Since 2020, Ministry Watch has been reporting on the challenges faced by Acts 29, which was founded in 1998 by the controversial Pastor Mark Driscoll and his mentor, David Nicholas.
0: Matt Chandler, the former president of Acts 29, has pastored the Village Church, which is a Southern Baptist congregation, since 2002.
1: But he took a leave of absence from both leadership positions in the fall of 2022 after having what was called then inappropriate social media contacts with a woman who is not his wife. He returned to the pulpit. That December. Now, in 2020, CEO Stephen Timmis was removed from his position after accusations of spiritual abuse. Coram Deo Church, which is in Bremerton, Washington, left Acts 29 in early 2023, following Garden City Church, which is located in the Silicon Valley.
0: Warren, let's look at one more story before we take a break. It's a significant development with one of the largest Christian broadcasters in the nation.
1: That group is Salem Media Group. It's a publicly traded Christian media and broadcasting giant. In fact, I think it's the only publicly traded company in the Christian space. But it plans to voluntarily remove its stock from the NASDAQ exchange, likely removing itself before it got delisted Uh, without uh, its consent. The move comes after Salem fell out of compliance with the $1 minimum bid price for continued listing on the NASDAQ global markets. In mid-June, the exchange issued a compliance notice to Salem after the stock spent 30 consecutive days hovering just below that threshold in the $0.90 range. The letter gave Salem 180 days to regain compliance by meeting or exceeding the $1 minimum
0: share for at least 10 days. The last time the stock broke a dollar was in uh, May 9th.
1: Last month, NASDAQ warned that Salem would be delisted in January unless Salem applied to transfer to the NASDAQ capital market or requested a hearing to appeal that suspension. Leadership uh, chose the latter initially And they ultimately, though, voluntarily delisted, and they said that that would be more advantageous. In a statement, Salem said it anticipated significant financial savings as a result of the delisting with reduced operating costs and management time for compliance and reporting.
0: Despite that attempt to paint this move in a positive light, the move is a blow to the company and is a new indication of the slow decline in the company's prospects over the last few years.
1: Ministry Watch previously reported Salem's third quarter 2023 results, uh, reporting a 5% year-over-year drop in revenue to $63.5 million. As operating expenses grew during that same time by over 31%, that caused it to have an operating loss of $36 million. Warren,
0: let's take a short break. When we return, North Carolina's Look Back Law is facing legal challenges, and that could be a blow to cases of sexual abuse survivors in the state. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break.
1: Hey everybody, Warren Smith here interrupting the podcast uh, with a couple of quick updates regarding Ministry Watch. First of all, we met our year-end goal. If you gave during November and December of 2023, uh, just can't tell you how grateful I am. And also (laughs) wanted to let you know that our needs go on. So if you did not give, Uh, We would love to hear from you in January or February uh, with uh, a gift. If you've got any left over after all those Christmas expenditures, uh, we would um, be grateful. Just go to uh, ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. Also wanted to let you know that we're going to have some... I would call them relatively minor changes, but I think significant changes to the way we do things here at Ministry Watch over the next month or two. Number one, we're making some tweaks to our website that we think will make it a little more user-friendly and uh, readable uh, that uh, I hope you will enjoy. And we're also going to be making some changes to our database as well so that uh, you can get to that database a little more easily and find things that are you are looking for uh, more quickly. So stay tuned during the month of January and February for some uh, minor but important improvements to the way we do things here uh, at Ministry Watch. Again, thank you so much for your support. God bless, and let's get back to the podcast.
0: Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, up next is the story we promised before the break. It's a story of a legal challenge in North Carolina's Safe Child Act, which is a law that has allowed sexual abuse survivors to initiate lawsuits for abuse that had previously been prevented by statutes of limitation laws. Some child sexual
1: abuse survivors in North Carolina are depending on a decision by the state Supreme Court to determine if they can, in fact, sue their abusers and any institution who enabled the abuse. One victim that Ministry Watch talked to is Stuart Griffin. He's afraid that the state's Supreme Court will decide the case. Case in a way that harms victims. This is what he said in a blog post. I fear that we will lose those victims who are just barely hanging on. And it's all because a few judges want to protect insurance companies and pedophiles, not the Constitution.
0: The constitutionality of the look back period included in North Carolina's 2019 Safe Child Act has been appealed by the Gaston County Board of Education. The look back period is a two year window allowing survivors who would otherwise be barred by the statute of limitations. It provides them a chance to sue in civil court. The look back window ended in December, uh, December thirty first of twenty
1: twenty one. One case that could be a impacted is Stuart Griffin's uh, case, the one the man that we just mentioned. He has uh, a case against his abuser, David Lee Wood, and two institutions that he claims enabled Wood's abuse in the 1990s, Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church and Charlotte Christian School. Wood was convicted of indecent liberties with a child and sentenced to 36 months of probation. He was also required to register as a sex offender for 10 years, but Griffin thinks the school and the church also bear responsibility, and that's why he filed suit. But that lawsuit would disappear if the North Carolina Supreme Court rules that the look-back window is unconstitutional.
0: So what are the chances that that will happen?
1: Well, the appeals court upheld the look-back window in a two-to-one decision in September, uh, reversing the decision of the original trial court that in the case that Gaston County had filed. Also, this State's Department of Justice filed a brief in the Supreme Court supporting the look back window that the state legislature passed unanimously in 2019. So, you know, there's uh, some chance to think that the Supreme Court will uphold this law. Uh, They so far, though, have not uh, set a time to hear oral arguments on the case.
0: Our next story involves Grand Canyon University and its ongoing feud with the federal government. Grand
1: Canyon University has once again been accused by the federal government of deception and misrepresentation regarding its doctoral programs and its nonprofit status. Uh, Grand Canyon is now the largest Christian university in the country with enrollment of about 118,000. They were sued by the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, on December 27 in an Arizona federal court. The FTC is seeking monetary relief and a permanent injunction.
0: The lawsuit includes allegations similar to those that resulted in a $37.7 million in fines by the Department of Education last fall. According
1: to the FTC, Grand Canyon University tells prospective students that its doctoral programs are accelerated and that the total cost will be the equivalent of 20 courses or 60 credit hours. However, nearly all of Grand Canyon doctoral students are required to take courses. What's called what are called continuation courses that often add thousands of dollars to the cost of the doctoral program. In fact, the Department of Education reported that fewer than 2% of Grand Canyon University doctoral candidates actually complete the program within the cost that GCU advertises.
0: According to the court documents, Grand Canyon University advertises and markets educational services through online and telemarketing efforts. The STC
1: alleges that these efforts include deceptively advertising the university as a nonprofit organization until June of 2018. Grand Canyon was owned and operated by a for-profit called Grand Canyon education in July of 2018. Um, Brian Mueller, who is the CEO of both Grand Canyon Education and the president of Grand Canyon University, directed Grand Canyon Education's efforts to rebrand the university as a nonprofit.
0: However, Grand Canyon Education and Grand Canyon University are still heavily integrated with Grand Canyon Education operating as the exclusive provider of marketing for Grand Canyon University and services related to communicating with prospective uh, university students.
1: Through the arrangement, uh, Grand Canyon Education receives 60% of Grand Canyon University's revenue uh, from tuitions and fees from the students, including 60% of charitable contributions uh, to GCU for payment of student tuition and fees, according to the court filings.
0: The university is designated as a nonprofit by the Internal Revenue Service. It is,
1: but the Federal Department of Education rejected the college's request to be treated as a nonprofit under the Higher Education Act for financial aid services like the Federal Student Loan Program. The Department of Education stated that in stated in 2019 that the financial arrangement between GCU and GCE violates the most basic tenet of nonprofit status, that the nonprofit be primarily operated for a tax exempt purpose and not substantially for the benefit of any other person or entity.
0: The school also categorically denied every accusation in the Department of Education statement and appealed the $37.7 million in fines assessed by the department.
1: In December of 2021, Grand Canyon University issued $1.2 billion in junk bonds to pay off the transition from for profit to nonprofit status that it had started in 2018.
0: Warren, we're going to take another break here when we return our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment.
1: Hey everybody, Warren Smith here, interrupting the podcast uh, with a couple of quick updates regarding Ministry Watch. First of all, we met our year-end goal. If you gave during November and December of 2023, uh, just can't tell you how grateful I am. And also wanted to let you know that our needs go on. So if you did not give, uh, we would love to hear from you in January or February uh, with uh, a gift. If you've got any left over after all those Christmas expenditures, uh, we would. be grateful just go to uh, ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page also wanted to let you know that we're gonna have uh, some I would call them relatively minor changes but I think significant changes to the way we do things here at ministry watch over the next month or two number one we're making some tweaks to our website that we think will make it a little more user-friendly and uh, readable uh, that uh, I hope you will enjoy and we're also going to be making some changes to our database as well so that uh, you can get to that database a little more easily and find things that you are looking for uh, more quickly so stay tuned during the month of january and february for some uh, minor but important improvements to the way we do things here uh, at ministry watch again thank you so much for your support god bless and let's get back to the podcast
0: Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first?
1: Milligan University in Johnson City, Tennessee, announced that it had chosen a new president. Stephen Wares, who is currently the chief academic officer and chief information officer at Point University in Georgia, will serve as the 16th president of Milligan starting August 1st of this year. Wares will succeed Bill Greer, who will retire at the end of the 2023 2024 academic year and transition into the role of chancellor at Milligan. The Christian Liberal Arts University has a student body of about 1,200 and was founded in 1866 to train leaders for churches and communities in Appalachia.
0: Milligan is not the only institution with new leadership.
1: The American Bible Society is also in the midst of a transition. One of the country's oldest nonprofit groups dates back more than 200 years, and it's named Dr. Jennifer Holloran as its new president and CEO. She's the first woman to hold that role at the Bible Translation and Distribution Organization. Holloran has a long history in the Bible translation industry. She spent 22 years at Wycliffe Bible Translators USA in various leadership roles, including the group's chief operations officer. She's also been on the boards of several other large nonprofits, including Missio Nexus, Mission Aviation Fellowship, and Partners International.
0: And we also have a couple of notable deaths to report.
1: We do, uh, especially uh, because of the holidays. We were not able to uh, report these when they happened. One of them was Don Wildman, um, a Methodist minister who rallied evangelicals to promote decency and reverse America's moral decline by employing boycotts as a culture war weapon. He died on December 28 after a long battle with Louis body dementia. He was 85 years old. Don Wildman felt a stronger calling to activism than he did to the pulpit after he and his family saw obscenity, adultery, and torture on primetime television uh, just before Christmas of 1976. He then organized a turn off the TV week in Mississippi in 1977, and in 1978 founded the National Federation of Decency. That ultimately was renamed to the American Family Association, and today the American Family Association is one of the largest Christian radio networks in the nation.
0: And a beloved Southern Baptist leader also recently passed away.
1: Junior Hill was, as you said, Natasha, beloved and well-traveled in Southern Baptist circles. He died on January 3rd in Hartsell, Alabama. He was 87 years old. In his 2005 autobiography, They Call Him Junior, Hill estimated that he had preached at more than 1,800 week-long revivals during his five decades of ministry. He was invited to speak at pastors' conferences, state conventions, churches, colleges, and seminaries all throughout his life. In 1989, Hill was also elected as the Southern Baptist Convention's first vice president at the convention's meeting, which was held that year in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hill is survived by his wife, Carol. They'd been married for 66 years, plus two children and five grandchildren.
0: And who did Christina highlight this week in her Ministries Making a Difference column?
1: Well, during the Christmas season, Child Evangelism Fellowship says it hosted 10,000 Christmas party clubs in the United States alone, sharing the gospel with three hundred and thirty thousand thousand children worldwide they said that they expected to reach more than 10 million children christmas party clubs are led by trained volunteers and include a uh, bible lesson games snacks a memory verse and songs to teach the true story of christmas and i should also mention that an organization called unknown nations which is a name that may be unknown to some of our listeners because they used to be called World Missions, a name that was much better known, is working with over 150 local missionaries in central Nigeria to respond to the massacre of Nigerian Christians during the Christmas season. They're offering tangible support, uh, you know, food and uh, other materials, but also doing a great deal of trauma healing training as well.
0: And do you have any final thoughts before we go today?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to um, mention once again that uh, we now finally have a final accounting for our year-end fundraising. Last week, I mentioned that we had not had that final accounting, but I promised I would bring that number to you when we did. Well, we got that this week. We had a year-end fundraising goal of about $117,000. That included both the months of November and December. And I'm pleased to report that we significantly exceeded that goal. Uh, we. Uh, it looks like we're going to top out at around hundred and Fifty thousand uh, dollars, which is uh, what doing doing my simple math here, is about fifteen or twenty percent above uh, our goal. So I'm really grateful to those of you who gave during the year-end season. I just want to say thank you. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Four years ago. Just weeks after I took over at Ministry Watch, we set a year-end goal of about $15,000. So to see that we have met a goal that is 10 times that just four years later is both humbling and gratifying. I'm grateful to God and to you who read, listen to, and financially support our
0: work. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosell and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Steve Raby, Shannon Cuthrell, Kim Roberts, Daniel Ritchie, Steve Raby, and Christina Darnell. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.